And welcome, everybody, to another episode of Smart Money Circle. My guest today is David Clark, president of Astoria Portfolio Advisors with total assets near $320 million. Dave, thank you very much for coming on the show today. Oh, thank you so much for having me join. So, Dave, can you uh, begin by telling us your story and how you got involved in this business? Yeah, you know, uh, my personal story uh, before uh, Story Portfolio Advisors, I worked for 25 years on the institutional uh, sales side, meaning 20 years at Bank America, Legacy Merrill Lynch, and uh, Society General, the French bank, uh, for five years. So total 25, all of it in some type of um, product sales, not content. So I was a convertible bond salesman for years and equity derivatives. Um, wore a lot of different hats and you know i also ran global uh, etf distribution uh at merrill lynch as well as society general which kind of dovetails into our business um historic portfolio advisors um uh my my partner john davi who's our cio founded historia going on three years ago and i joined him about uh six months later after i could get out of uh the, the bank contract i was in and John's background is uniquely in uh, the portfolio management, con- portfolio construction side. I worked with him at Merrill Lynch. Uh, he worked for 20 years in portfolio constructive construction uh, quantitative research teams at both uh, Morgan Stanley and uh, Merrill Lynch. He was also, in terms of those few hats he wore, he was also uh, ran global ETF research at Morgan Stanley, of which he was II ranked number one for a number of years. So we've got a unique uh, skill set combination looking at our strategies both from a portfolio construction background and really knowing the ETF universe and space well. I love it. So uh, I guess the next question is can you tell us a little about your strategy? Yeah, so um, you know our strategies and also kind of in explaining our strategies, explaining who we are facing which type of client base. So we really face two different types of constituents. One are the the, the BDs. So we're on 20 different broker-dealer and uh, TAM platforms. And there they view us as an ETF-managed portfolio firm, right? So ETF-managed portfolios, uh, you know, if the ETF industry is about a $4 trillion market cap, about 10% of that is held by firms like ours that only use ETFs in the construction and management uh, of their portfolios. Okay. And that's a pretty binary working relationship, meaning we don't have a lot of interaction with those BDs or their end-user clients. Our other set of constituents that we face, and is really the lion's share of our business as we go forward, is facing specifically RAAs. And for RAAs, we have more of an overall outsourced CIO-type uh, role and services for those funds. Um, so RAAs specifically um, that we do OCIO-type services is generally those funds or strategies or RAs that are between 50 and call it uh, three, 400 million. And they've got a couple few people working in their firm and their need for us is that they're typically wearing all hats, right? They have a tax practice, financial planning, they're out there marketing, trying to find new clients. They're also trying to manage their own internally managed uh, investment solutions from operational to investment decisions. They're wearing a lot of hats and they ultimately feel constrained and like they're not doing them all well. And by being able, having us being able to bolt on and provide content and research and to physically manage their strategies um, and obviously the operational and the tax constraints involved in them really frees them up to be able to do other things. 
So again, I'd say we're an ETF managed portfolio firm. If you're, if you're looking at us from a BD uh, vantage point, and if you're an RAA, uh, we're an outsourced uh, CIO type firm with all the services that uh, you know are rendered within it. Oh, fantastic! So, and, yep, go ahead. Yes. So, for, from an investment strategy perspective, um, we've got nine different strategies, and, and you know the best way to put it is uh, first and foremost, we're not uh, by any stretch of the imagination tactical. We don't find a lot of um, demand right now from REAs looking for one tactical manager versus another in one space or another. Okay. So our strategies, nine of them, are all strategically benchmarked, um, uh, broad market, um, cross-asset, diversified, of which we're always going to be using uh, low-cost uh, ETFs, which are by definition, you know, using an ETF-managed portfolio, liquid, transparent, and tax-efficient. Um, and, you know, tax efficiency is a big part of what we do in our strategies, meaning um, tax loss harvesting. You know, a portfolio of ETFs in and of themselves are generally tax efficient products, certainly relative to a mutual fund, right? Right. Um, but tax loss harvesting, specifically within the, within the ETF managed portfolio space, is a very big active discipline uh, that most clients we face don't do. Really, most clients we face are really doing, if at all, ad hoc uh, tax loss harvesting at the end of the year. But the value uh, of this type of construct of having a portfolio of nine to call it 15 different ETFs is you can systematically and actively uh, harvest those losses throughout the course of the year. So, for example, if we've got 15% of our globally diversified strategically benchmark portfolio, in emerging markets, an emerging market ETF, if that ETF throughout the duration of the year sells off more than 5%, we're going to move it out real quick and we're going to move in one of the other eight other you know ETFs in the EM space that meet our qualifications as it equates to cost, liquidity, uh, so on and so forth. So it's a real systematic uh, process that doesn't actively get done. It's a big part of what we do. No, that's fantastic. So let me let me just jump in for a second. Can you explain to the audience that aren't familiar with tax loss harvesting as a strategy of what exactly it is and the benefits? Yeah. So you know, um, yeah, I mentioned the example of EM. If you know, most people uh, do tax loss harvesting at the end of the year. They say, okay, well, I've got some positions that are down X amount, some that are up. Uh, I'm going to make the calculation that I'm going to take losses in the strategy where I've lost and offset it versus the gains of which I'm long. Um, but they make the mistake of doing it only at year end. And that's where I say, again, ETF specifically, um, you know, there's so many different substitute ETFs that can meet your qualifications and still have you stick to your broader market uh, discipline and strategy. And that's where, you know, at any point in the year, if it moves off more than 5%, some kind of meaningful amount, depending on the client's assets or positioning, we're going to take that loss and harvest it, right? We're going to take that loss and we're going to use that versus gains at the end of the year. So it's an active discipline that should be going on at any point in the calendar year. It shouldn't wait till the end of the year. At that right. point, you've missed you've missed most of your opportunities. So that's really the, the, the basic construct. So it's incorporating tax planning and efficiencies into the overall strategy, not just trading, 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 or making investment decisions all year and then dealing with tax man at the end of the year. You're actually actively incorporating tax considerations throughout the year, which is something that most people just don't do. And that's a really good well, point. That's something most people, that's exactly right. Yeah, that's a really good point. It, it's most people don't do, and if you think about it in the context of, say, mutual funds, 
um, really tax inefficient products on a relative basis. And that's why ETF niche portfolios have grown really at the expense of mutual funds. You know, what was it? The, the 2018, right? When everything sold off at the end of the year, everyone was hitting these tax bills at the beginning of last year, right? Uh, the average equity mutual fund was down 10%, but 60% of them had big capital gains taxes to pay out. That's the type of inefficient tax event that's not going to happen in effectively and dynamically managed uh, ETF strategy. So that would be the tech. Right. Sorry, sorry, wouldn't it just be anything, not just mutual funds, but stocks or any other kind of strategy, even whatever it is, if you don't incorporate taxes. But but if you think about it, um, it's not really appropriate to say, okay, Tesla sold off X amount, so I'm going to sell that and replace it with Ford or GM. Oh, I right. see. On a single stock basis, right. tax loss harvesting is much more cumbersome. Um, you know, it, it's not nearly as viable as a construct when you've got a tight band of nine to, to fifteen ETFs, and most of them have many substitutes. Understood. So, as long as you know the rules around uh, the wash sale, which is having to do with tax loss harvesting, right, you can identify and know those ETFs and have them ready for you when you want to supplant them in for another. Got it. Makes sense. Um, and, you know, uh, otherwise, you know, a little bit more on our strategies, yeah, so we are strategically <laughs> benchmarked, right? So no surprises uh, in our instance of our nine strategies, let's say most of them are benchmarked to all world equities, equity, and then the Bloomberg aggregate bond index. And to make it simple, um, our strategies are going to have different risk weightings versus those benchmarks. So we're going to be, you know, aggressive is going to be 80-20, conservative is going to be 20 equity, uh, 80 fixed income, so on and so forth. But we're not just strategic benchmarks. We do what we call a dynamic overlay. So within these strategies, uh, we're going to do a few different things, which are different than a simple strategic allocation. But yet it's still going to keep us close to our benchmarks from a risk uh, perspective. And that is one, uh, we do, uh, you know, we, we deploy factor tilts, right? So we're, we're value uh, investors on the margin for factor tilts versus um momentum or growth. Or for instance, we've got a value tilt uh, and see value within emerging markets right now. So if emerging markets is 15% of a respective benchmark, we may have a 17, 18% tilt. So around the margin, we're going to have factor tilts and factor tilts are not meant to be timed, right? They're pervasive and they play out over time. Also, we're very focused on risk-adjusted returns, right? So we're trying to dampen the volatility of the respective benchmark that we are invested in. So with that, we'll also use anywhere from 15, uh, sorry, 5 to 15% of our portfolio construction is going to be in alternatives that aren't correlated with their respective benchmarks. So these are ETF-type uh, alternatives, so gold, low-duration bonds, uh, this type of thing. But on the margin, and I'll get into it later, that really drives our risk-adjusted returns, and it softens the volatility of the portfolio. And translation over time, you capture a lot more of the upside than you do with the downside. Right. And then the third part of that dynamic overlay we do, the first part is factor tilts, the second part is the use of alternatives. And the third is what we talked about earlier, the systematic active tax loss harvesting. Okay, so you're basically able to combine several strategies into one powerful one, and now you use all nine strategies for every account, or is it based on the client's needs? No, we don't. So, um, you know, obviously from a BD perspective, uh, they they may use uh, all nine strategies, Um, but from, uh, you know, wearing the the outsourced CIO hat we do facing RAs, you know, 
where it fits is this. Often, those type of strategies, uh, those RAs between 50 and a few hundred million in assets that are managing it on their own, um, they're often using their own internally devised um, liquid strategies, which are often, um, you know, predominantly ETF strategies. And they're meant to be benchmarked, but, you know, when we do a deep dive into the strategies they're dealing with right now, they've got all kinds of style risk relative to their respective benchmarks. They don't systematically rebalance. And all that is good in uh, a straight-up bull market like, uh, you know, some of the years we've had because it just kind of gets washed out in the performance. But we really uh, tie our investment discipline to those benchmarks and a total and radical transparency around what we're doing around the margins because we're delivering that benchmark plus so that you can be able to judge us versus, well, everyone was up, you know, 14% last year. So, you know, uh, we must be good type thing. So you need to be able to tie it to something. And that's important. Here's why. Um, one need we really see um, and long-term liability with our RAA clients is the regulatory risk they run by managing their own internal strategies. Like I said, most of these strategies we deal with or smaller RAs, um, you know, they start out an inception uh, benchmark to different strategies, but they're not rebalancing. They're not actively managing around the margin. Um, and, you know, some of our biggest clients, for instance, one of our biggest clients is a big RAA aggregator, right? They've got, you know, 50 RAs underneath them and they've got 15 billion in assets. And they had regulators come into their offices uh, at the beginning of last year, 2019, so past the 2018 debacle of the fourth quarter. And they said, um, we're here with you uh, so we can sit in conference room seat for the next week. And we want to see all of your RAs and how they did relative to their investment strategies and their discipline. So how did they do relative to they said what they're going to do? And that's where they found the real liability in that uh, these strategies weren't doing what they told their clients uh, they were supposed to do originally. They weren't actively managed. They weren't rebalanced. They weren't uh, cost-effective. They've got all kinds of mutual funds in there and this type of thing. And it, it presents a liability long-term uh, long to these clients, right? We've all gotten, or I have a tax bill for, you know, four years later from 2015. You don't know when it's going to come back to bite you, but the, the issue we've had with our clients that find this need is they've had regulators come in and they're not looking how you did last year in a bull market. They're saying, show us your last six years. Right. How, what were your performance these strategies and what was your stated investment objective? Right. And if it varies, whether you outperformed it by great margin or under, that's a problem. Yes. And it's a long-term liability for people that they want to kind of move outside of their discipline and be able to free up their time to focus on uh, the right things as it relates to their clients. So, and that, um, you know, that also by freeing it up to an outsourced CIO like ourselves, right, we're, we're generally managing those assets for the client, active custodian, right, where it's Schwab, TD, Fidelity, RBC. Um, so we can physically manage the operational end of things. We can physically manage the active tax loss harvesting. And also, you know, from a regulatory perspective, they love with RAs, uh, ETF managed portfolios, right? ETF managed portfolios are the largest uh, asset class, uh, if you can believe it now, in the major wirehouses at Merrill Lynch or, or Bank America. It's over $50 billion in assets, just in ETF-managed portfolios. But they love them if they're, if they're holding to their discipline and doing what their stated objective is. Right. And that's what you get with portfolios like ours. They're going to perform to the stated objective. 
Um, and, and, and that's what's needed. And that's what certifies and ticks the box from a regulatory perspective. And also from a regulatory perspective and from a client perspective, if they're using us as an OCIO type firm, maybe, you know, always they're going to have 20, 30 uh, percent of their assets in Facebook and Google because their client, you know, is down in Florida and they, they right. still want a big bet on those strategies. But for the rest of it, ETF managed portfolios, broad market, cross asset, diversified, benchmarked to equities and debt are that kind of panacea approach uh, to investment management. Um, so it, it, it serves the need on a, on a lot of levels, uh, not the least of which uh, is performance for your clients and from a regulatory perspective, not having that long-term liability that a lot of them have right now. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. And that's a big need for a lot of RAs out there. So It really is. It really is. Uh, I guess, Dave, the next question, segue here is, how do you handle risk and what mistakes do you see people make with respect to risk management? Right. It's a great question. Um, we, um, you know, have this, most people manage risk and structure portfolios based on, you know, some form of a backward looking approach, right? Uh, and markets, the reality is trade on the margin on a forward looking view. So, we manage risk, uh, how I alluded to before. We've got our stated respective benchmarks, um, no tactical views at all within them. Um, but um, we focus specifically out of story on risk-adjusted after-tax, after-inflation returns, right? That is our discipline. Um, and so we look for value. We, we, we start each year uh, or anytime we rebalance which is a couple times a year based on our strategic uh, benchmarks and then what we're doing with our factor tilts. But we look for value within the respective benchmarks and we tilt accordingly, right? So we're not just going to be benchmarked to, to fixed income and equities. And if some segments of fixed income are overvalued, so be it. That's the benchmark. We're going to have factor and style tilts within. Um, so what that means for us, for instance, in a forward-looking year right now and how we're positioned as a firm, um, you know, in the U.S., uh, in terms of equities, we favor, you know, high quality dividend growth stocks. We value, we value uh, you know, value stocks and quality, high quality dividend paying mid caps. Internationally, we're very constructive. We favor China, emerging markets and value stocks and the high quality dividend paying stocks in Japan and Europe. So, again, all this is going back to risk adjusted uh, returns that offer lower volatility than our peers and over time a better upside downside capture ratio. Or for instance, yeah. in bonds for our bond allocation, we're not going to just plainly invest in bonds in our strategies, right? I mean, um, you know, bonds had an incredible run last year, which is really not sustainable. And it's left on big segments of the market, um, you know, trading rich on a relative basis. So um, with that run behind us, um, certain sense markets are trading rich. So we're going to be, uh, you know, our positioning is really focused on undervalued. Let's follow the second. So, short-term high-quality bonds or munis, securitized credit, these types of pockets within our benchmark weightings really do offer distinctively better risk-return profiles. And those are factor tilts, right? And they play out over time. So we, we don't try and time those factors. When we look to strategic rebalance at the beginning of the year, the middle of the year, we're going to look for those tilts within our strategies. And on the margin, we're going to position ourselves that way. So we're not trying to Game anything or tick the, you know, really catch some kind of movement, you know, run up at the end of the summer. These things are going to play out pervasively within our strategies. Lower risk, lower volatility, better risk adjusted returns 
over their lifetimes, what our clients value. So the way you handle risk, if I understand you correctly, is by cr- coming up with multiple strategies, running them in a tax efficient and balanced approach to help you achieve your longer term, I guess, results or goals or objectives. That's what I was looking for. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. That's right. And, you know, the the results, uh, well, I'll get into our results (laughs) on this issue as it relates to risk adjusted returns. You know, our our strategies last year, uh, all nine of them were up between 11 and, and 20%. Which is fun because I bet a lot of people's strategies internally managed went up because everything did last year. But what does that mean? What that means is six of the nine of our strategies outperformed their, their, their benchmarks on an absolute basis. That's great. Maybe we got lucky. But the proof in the pudding is our sharp ratio returns, right? So sharp ratio, a lot of people don't want to get into Greeks, and they certainly don't want to translate it to their end user clients. But sharp ratio is telling you, what are your risk-adjusted returns? Are you taking less risk, and lower volatility in your strategies than the respective benchmarks. So seven of the nine of our strategies outperformed on a sharp ratio basis last year. Also, seven of the line of our strategies over their lifetimes have uh, outperformed on a sharp ratio basis. And one demonstrable real-life example of what that sharp ratio means is this. Our longest-running strategy um, is called Mars multi-asset risk strategy, but that's simply benchmarked 60-40, more or less, to uh, all world equities and the Bloomberg aggregate bond index. But over its lifetime, over those nine years, that outperformance in a sharp ratio means that that strategy has captured 85% of the upside of the respective benchmarks over its nine-year lifetime and 70% of the downside. See, a lot of people look at ETF managed portfolios and they're like, well, it's well, it's just kind of market long, right? That you can't hedge, they're, they're not going short. But by that smart portfolio construction, the use of alternatives, factor tilts that are pervasive and play out over time, um, and separately from performance, but it, it, gets, it winds up in the end performance that tax loss harvesting, although it's not in our performance. But what that leads to is lower volatility, i.e. lower downside capture ratio and higher upside capture ratio. And that's what our clients are looking for. And that's what we're always looking to deliver. Um, right, it, it, you know, and it's it's easily translatable this type of investment discipline relative to others, to our clients, to their end user clients. Right, yeah, most people know what an ETF is. Right. Most people use them. How about using an aggregated basket of these in a smart portfolio construction way that can be benchmarked? Um, but rather than buying just an indice, you're getting a much more tax efficient vehicle over time um, with outperformance on a um, risk adjusted basis less downside participation, more upside. That's the kind of, you know, identifiable investment process that we deploy um, it, it, all in the construct, which I talked about before, which is liquid, it's an ETF, it's transparent, it's an ETF, right, relative to mutual fund. It's cost-efficient, tax-efficient, so on and so forth. No, and that makes perfect sense. And for the RIA or even the individual who's looking to outsource their CIO role and focus on other things, it's the value is right there. It's it's loud and clear. So I guess the next question. Yep, no surprises. No surprises. You're not betting on some manager who you, you know did well the last two years and has a strong view on the Fed in the fourth quarter. It's noise. Right. Right. No one can outperform Trump's tweets or what's going to happen next. Um, so it's if it's an identifiable allocation and here's what we're going to deliver around that allocation, that's what people can get comfortable with and that's what can get translated to their clients in a nice way. 
Yeah, you know, actually what you said too about looking forward and not backwards is a great point. I have a book coming out. It's called Psychological Analysis on Markets. And I was in the book, a big point of it is to help make objective, not emotional decisions, but look to the right of the chart, not to the left. Because most people look at the left, that's where the past action is, but you make your money to the right of the chart. So I like that point a lot. So I guess, Dave, my next question is, so I guess, Dave, the next question I want to ask you is, um, what are some timeless lessons you've learned along the way that you'd like to share with the audience? Yeah, I mean, very difficult question to distill down so many, but one thing that we're always dealing with, and I think it translates uh, to, to to clients as well, is integration. You know, you, it, it's all about finding uh, the next client, and that's a long-term uh, lead time sale, whether you're an RA uh, dealing with people locally in your neighborhood or a firm like ours that's also an RA, but we're dealing more with RAs and BDs as intermediaries to the client, but Long-term lead time sale is, is one form or another something we all uh, deal with. But once you get the client signed, uh, integration is such a, an important period. Uh, what I mean by that is, you know, take for for instance in our our situation. If, you know, we've been speaking to an RA for a while. Everyone's gotten comfortable with the process. Then someone signs an IMA. But there's a lot that happens in the integration process, right? Uh, uh, you know. We get connected to the RAA uh, via the custodial process to be able to sub-advise. That can take a while. Some people don't have the right documentation in place. Um, communication to their clients in terms of hiring a sub-advisor or the migration of, of their assets onto a new platform. Um, these things take time. And, you know, saying the client, once you sign them uh, to your respective firm or platform, okay, here really is the identifiable pro- process that we both need to follow between now and the next three months, this integration process, because the, the clock is ticking, right? Both, both sides are, one side's paying when the other side's receiving. Um, and this integration process can, can take a long time, or it can move relatively quickly if we stay on a schedule. So I really try and find, or I have found, the best way, um, the integration of your client assets from when they signed to when you're really up and running and managing your assets can take time, lots of variables. But really, at that moment of inception of signing, signing really at both parties being on the same page, here's what needs to be done in the next two months. Here's what should be done in the next two weeks. After that's done, we'll move on to this project, so on and so forth. But keeping people on an identifiable schedule that you've orchestrated in advance gives the client comfort and gives you comfort um, rather than just two months of integration. You know, where are we with X, Y, and Z client? Did he send that email yet with the rep codes? Stuff like that can bog people down and gets lost in, in the kind of malaise. So keeping everyone on an organized schedule um, so that, you know, at the end of the rainbow, here we are and we're able to deliver everything that we say we we're doing, which is the reason why you hired us is that, you know, the vision of what it would look like to bolt on these two firms together and freeing up your time. Otherwise, that integration and the migration of assets, all these things can take time. It gets inefficient. All of a sudden, it's the second quarter and, you know, things don't go as planned. So integration is key. Having an identifiable timeline and list of what needs to be accomplished gives both sides comfort and keeps the ship on the right track. That's really a good point for the advisors. How about from an investing standpoint, from actual, you know, from just people making investment decisions, what are some timeless lessons you've learned along the way there that you'd like to share? 
Well, investment decisions, I would say, I, I maybe um, have a different, slightly different angle on that conversation or question. Um, and it kind of goes back to that old saying, kind of, what's in your way is your way, right? That the, the problems you have at the front of your mind, and you're not sure which one to tackle first, lo and behold, it's a month later, you haven't done anything. Right. So, you know, it, when, when we say, when I say what's in your way is your way, a lot of times when we look at our value at the clients, it's where I say, look, it's, it's a few people in our office, they're managing a million different things, operations, marketing, financial planning, tax, investing, so on and so forth. And we say, look, you know, you're doing all these things, candidly, probably none of them right, because nobody feels comfortable they're growing fast enough or serving their clients right, you know, their level of communication, so on and so forth. Um, but that investment piece of it and the managing of that investment piece of it and even begin to attempt about making it tax efficient by tax loss harvesting or rebalancing those portfolios, you know, they're largely what we find in these small firms. They're not doing it right. And it's kind of bogging them down and weighing them down on everything else they should do be doing appropriately, strategically speaking, to grow their firm. So that's what's in their way is their way. So being able to say, okay, you know what? I'm not going to keep on uh, tripping along like this with the long-time liability I have with regulators, um, knowing I'm not really rebalancing and doing what I'm saying I should be doing with my clients and what they're told they're going to be getting out of their investments. And to be able to outsource that and say, okay, now I am free to move on and actively manage my clients on a proactive basis the way I should, whether it's relationship building and relationship management, um, the marketing, all these other pieces fall into place if they can move out of their way what is in their way. And oftentimes, that is the investment discipline end of things. Uh, and that's where people really uh, fall into this kind of black hole of not getting stuff done. And it's really detrimental uh, beyond the long-term regulatory uh, liability effect of it. It really, you know, impedes their growth, right? They never walk around feeling like they're doing everything right. They're always playing defense. And that begins and ends with that, you know, noose tied around their neck. uh, And that's the portfolio management end of it. Understood. Now, um, I guess we've covered a lot of mistakes also throughout this this show. So what's the best piece of advice, Dave, you've you've ever received or given that you'd like to share with the audience? Uh, best piece of advice. Um, now, now we're getting into, uh, just kind of <laughs> waxing lyrical about life, but, um, I read a book that I try and, um, you know, recommend to people called the one thing. Right. And, um, yeah, I've read it. It's a great by book. Gary, Gary Keller, but it's you know, book, you yeah. can imagine what that book means. So yeah. That's organizing your thoughts. You've got a million things on your plate. And this is what REA specifically deal with all wealth managers. They've got so many different ways. That's why they went independent doing all these things for their clients. But what is the one thing in your way? You know, if you take a step back right now, you're not doing anything right. But what is your one problem that if you free up that problem, you're really going to be able to see a cascade of solutions follow on everything else, growth, client relationships. And, you know, that conveniently goes back, uh, dovetails to the prior point I made in terms of investment management. But figuring out within your growing business, your independent business, um, what is the, the one thing that if I tackle this and put it behind me uh, in, a, in, in a clean shape and form, sustainable going forward, I'm really going to be able to free my time and service my clients better and on and on and on. Um, that, to me, is really, 
you know, kind of the guides that we live by in our firm. And that's how we look at each day to day. There's day to day issues we deal with. But what is it this quarter we're trying to solve for? Is it these type of clients? Is it these type of clients? Is it a portfolio management issue? So on and so forth. But for independent uh, financial advisors, that would be uh, what I've learned the most in the discipline we try to stick to for our growth. Uh, nice. Very nice. So, Dave, what's the best way for people to get in touch with you? Yeah, sure. Um, well, starting with, with the obvious, my email is dclark, D-C-L-A-R-K, at astoriaadvisors.com. You can look on our website, uh, www.astoriaadvisors.com. On that website, uh, you'll see, you know, everything from all the content we issue, just to put a plug on that, uh, sir, um, you know, we're contributing uh, editors at Seeking Alpha, CNBC.com, ETF.com. We make a lot of media appearances. Our CIO, John Davies, on CNBC once a week type thing. Um, so all of our content media appearances there, as well as all the radical transparency around our portfolio construction and our different strategies. But everything's on our website. And lastly, you can reach me directly, uh, 917-862-1955. Beautiful. Well, Dave, thank you so much for coming on the show. It was a pleasure. Well, thank you so much for inviting me. I appreciate it. Talk to you again soon. Thank you.